2: Hello, and welcome to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel and this program Autism One, a Conversation of Hope for Tuesday, December 1st. I'm Terry Arango with my guests, Drs. Kyle Van Dyke and Lauren Underwood, and Kelly Adams. Dr. Van Dyke is a board certified uh, practitioner in family medicine and attended medical school at the University of Chicago. Dr. Underwood holds a doctorate in biology and is a senior staff scientist with SSAI Incorporated supporting NASA. Kelly Adams was a former Executive Vice President with MBNA before leaving that to become a full-time mother to move her son, Roman, forward on the road to recovery. Our topic today, hyperbaric oxygen therapy as a treatment option for children diagnosed with autism. Thank you all for joining us here today. Thank you, Terry. Before getting into what autism really is and the science of hyperbaric and how these relate, I'd like to start with Kelly. Kelly, when we were chatting before the show, you really shared a wow with me talking about your son, Roman, and trying hyperbaric oxygen therapy.
3: Um, yes, Carrie And by the way, before I start, I just want to thank you for having us. This is an important topic, and I appreciate you getting the word out to, to people about it. Um, but, yeah, my son, um, yeah, hyperbaric oxygen therapy for my son in particular was nothing short of miraculous. Um, we experienced so many positive changes in him. Uh, it, was, it was incredible.
2: Well, where did you start out? What was the improvement that you saw?
3: Well, I should start by saying that my son um, did not have any language whatsoever until he was four years old. Um, when we did get language, it was very limited, one, two-word, um, and it was all needs-based. We started doing hyperbarics with him when he was uh, just shy of six years old, and um, we noticed immediate changes in language acquisition, which was kind of my primary goal in doing hyperbarics. Um, he went from these, these simple two-word, we used to call them like caveman utterances, to complete sentences. Um, And the ironic thing is, it happened so quickly, I wasn't even the first person to take note of it. We had done about 20 treatments, and my son's speech therapist stopped me after one of his speech therapy sessions, and he asked if we had started anything new recently, because she was seeing these incredible improvements in his speech patterns. Um, I told her a little bit about what we had started doing with hyperbarics, and how we were, you know, kind of still new to it, but, you know, that, that we were optimistic. Um, She was really interested in it for some of her other clients who demonstrated some of the same language issues and barriers as my son. In fact, she ended up going to visit the clinic where we were treating to learn more about hyperbarics herself because she was so interested in it. She ended up um, recommending many families to treat there. And this was a speech therapist. Yes, completely independent, had no idea what we were doing. I'm one of those people that... Whenever we we tried a new treatment or therapy, I always did two things. One, I isolated it so I knew that if we were seeing any any changes, good, bad or other, you know, I I would be able to know, okay, this is attributed to hyperbarics or chelation or whatever we were we were kind of trying at the time. The other thing that I did was I tried not to tell too many people, like ABA therapists, speech therapists, PTs, just so that I could have like an objective you know, third-party opinion because sometimes, as parents, you know, we're somewhat invested emotionally in these treatments, and and we want to maybe see things, or we're not entirely the best um, the best reporter, so to speak. At least I speak for myself. I'm certainly not. And it's nice to have an impartial, you know, third party who doesn't know what's going on, bring to light some of these these changes. You know, whether they're positive or negative.
2: So the hyperbaric oxygen therapy was the only intervention that you were doing at the time, and the speech therapist hadn't known that you were doing it. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Now, uh, were you using high pressure or low pressure? We started
3: out, um, the first 40 dives we did, um, or 40 treatments, we did at high pressure. Um, so we did at 1.5 in one of the um, you know, the big steel, big blue chambers my son called it the space tube
2: right and i know that some people probably have some safety concerns and and this seems like it was safe for your son
3: oh gosh it not only it was probably the the best most enjoyable part of our day i went in with him on almost every treatment my ex-husband went in with some of them but i never felt um unsafe it, i mean the the clinic that we treated at the the people there were so professional and it was very well maintained, they, they exercised every possible safety precaution that you can imagine. Um, I, I never felt unsafe, ever.
2: And your son tolerated it well?
3: Oh, yeah, tolerated is, is a good word here. He not only tolerated it, he enjoyed it. He would ask every single day. If, we were, if today was the day we were going to the space tube or not. I used to dread Sundays because the clinic wasn't open on Sunday, and I knew inevitably he was going to ask 100 times that day if we were going to the space tube.
2: Wow. Yeah,
3: he, he loved it. I think it was his favorite part of the day. It was, we usually treated in the afternoon, and it was quiet, and it was just the two of us. We had a little bit of alone time, and, you know, it, just, it was very pleasant for him. He really enjoyed it.
2: And you can also do some other things while you're in the chamber as well, can't you? There's space.
3: Oh, oh, yeah, absolutely. We we read books. We did actually we did some of his ABA programs in there, which is kind of like double dipping. <laughs> We're doing two treatments at once, but he doesn't know that. Um, but yeah, we would do ABA programs. We'd do coloring books. We would read. It was it was the best part of the day.
2: Yeah, and and then that brings to mind that there was the potential that that your being in there too could have even helped your health.
3: Well, you know, I I always used to ask every time I would come out of the treatment, I would ask, you know, do I look any younger? And
2: they they would always laugh and say no. (laughs) Mm. Well, on that note, uh, Drs. Van Dyke and Underwood, let's start with some basic information about autism, then talk about the science behind hyperbaric oxygen therapy, and then bring them together. First of all, what's oxidative stress and how is it involved in autism?
4: I guess I can answer that. Oxidative stress is um, basically damage that's done to your cells from the process of your body using energy. It's when your body, the mitochondria in your cells are making energy that you start to get these um, byproducts called free radicals that can damage DNA, RNA, cell membranes. Normally, your body's making antioxidants that go and kind of quench these things, but in certain conditions, and, and autism is one of them, there's evidence that you're making too much of these free radicals and your body's not able to compensate for it. So over time, you're accumulating this damage to the cells that's called oxidative stress.
5: In addition, there are many diseases that are associated with an oxidative stress condition, including allergy and inflammation.
2: Well, Dr. Underwood, what types of inflammatory processes are involved in
5: autism? Um, Well, it's uh, interesting that you mention that because, you know, as we're seeing with the recent research that's come out, is that, you know, autism isn't just uh, a disorder that seems to be um, solely based on a psychiatric diagnosis. We've come to understand that many children suffer from um, gastrointestinal inflammation, neuroinflammation, immune system dysfunction, oxidative stress. Uh, mitochondrial dysfunction, all of these clinical symptoms are associated and have been observed in many children who have autism.
2: So if we take what the two of you have just said, Dr. Van Dyke and Underwood, what kinds of damage can occur to chronically inflamed cells and tissues in general in the human body for anyone?
4: Well, I mean, a kind of classic example of uh, chronic inflammation going on is stuff like rheumatoid arthritis and stuff uh, where you start to get the damage to your joints from chronic inflammation going on. Um, you know, neuroinflammation over time is going to chronically damage uh, cells, and that's typically that you see over time that uh, children with autism, uh, you know, get worse over, uh, over time generally.
5: On a fundamental level, I mean, what's happening is you end up with cell and tissue damage, and when you have cell and tissue damage, those cells and tissues cannot function properly, and you end up with some sort of disease state or condition.
2: All right. Now, some people, hmm, I do not this might be kind of a complicated question. I don't know. But some people might try to argue that neuroinflammation is a good thing. That doesn't seem to be consistent with what you're saying.
4: Well, I mean, inflammation is a response to injury, generally. I mean, if you get hit by a baseball bat, you get inflammation at that point, and that's where your body is doing the healing process. And now generally, as soon as that healing process is completed, the inflammation goes away. Now, sometimes for various reasons, that inflammatory response doesn't get turned off normally. And when it doesn't get turned off normally, then you get chronic inflammation, and chronic inflammation is generally never a good thing. Um, That's what you see in all these um, arthritic diseases and other diseases where you get this chronic inflammation going on that starts to damage the tissue.
5: And, again, that's a balance in, you know, your immune system functioning properly. As Dr. Van Dyke just said, you know, if you got, like, hit and you bruised and you have inflammation, same thing if you just have, like, a small cut on your finger. And if you can look at it and see, you end up with redness and swelling and inflammation, and that's a good thing because the cells of your body that go in to heal that particular wound are doing their job. And, again, you know, once they've done their job, the inflammation recedes and, you know, that you no longer have that condition or state.
2: Are there conditions where there's a lack of sufficient oxygenation, enough oxygen can't reach tissues, and, and why would lack of sufficient oxygenation be detrimental to healing?
4: Well, oxygen needed for energy production in the body. It's what makes us uh, able to metabolize uh, our, our foods and stuff much more efficiently by using oxygen. Um, they've done studies looking at autism where they do something called a SPECT scan, which is basically um, looking at how much the perfusion in your brain that goes on, and they've seen that the children with autism have less perfusion going on in their brain.
2: Now that's a really important point, so could you please speak up a little bit?
4: Sure. The, so the, they've done studies looking at these SPECT scans on children, and they'll actually see if there's areas of the brain that are hypoperfused, meaning they're not getting enough blood flow not getting enough oxygen out there. If you're not getting enough oxygen out to those regions, then obviously the the cells are not going to be able to function efficiently.
2: Dr. Underwood, would you like to comment on that?
5: Absolutely. I mean, for a wound to heal or for any part of the body to function properly, there has to be sufficient energy, nutrients, and oxygen for this to happen. If oxygen is deprived or deleted, it's going to affect proper cell, tissue, brain function. You need adequate oxygen to heal and function properly. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, that just seems to make common sense. Well, I know that we're going to be going to the break momentarily so, but let's just start to get into what what hyperbaric oxygen is.
4: Um, Essentially, hyperbaric oxygen uh, therapy is uh, where you put somebody in a chamber where they're getting exposed to uh, to air under increased pressure. Uh, That hyperbaric therapy would just be air under increased pressure. Hyperbaric oxygen therapy is where you have an increased oxygen concentration. Normal oxygen concentration in room air is 21%, and that can go anywhere up to 100% in some of these chambers. Um, So you have people go in these chambers for periods, uh, usually 60 minutes, where they're being exposed to this higher pressure, higher oxygen environment, and uh, they do treatments once or twice a day, usually.
5: And again, to break it down, I mean, hyperbaric, hyper means increase, baric means pressure, and when you're talking about oxygen, you're increasing uh, pressure and oxygen, Uh, All these things combined together means you're increasing the amount of available oxygen for use by the body by increasing pressure.
2: Very good. All right, we'll pick up with this thought when we come back from break at the Voice America Health and Mama's channel. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzamedica. We'll be right back.
6: Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness.
1: Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry.
2: We're back with Dr. Kyle Van Dyke and Lauren Underwood and Kelly Adams, and we're talking about hyperbaric oxygen therapy as a treatment option for children diagnosed with autism. Before the break, we learned that uh, what hyperbaric oxygen is, with hyper meaning an increase in the quantity or quality of something, and baric meaning pressure. So combined with oxygen, these two terms together would define hyperbaric oxygen therapy, and Dr. Underwood, let's pick up with what you were talking about. Um, Where does hyperbaric oxygen actually deliver the oxygen? What does hyperbaric oxygen do in relation to cells and tissues in general, and especially um, what would bear upon tissue recovery or prevention of further damage?
5: Okay, you got a lot of questions in there, but just to go back to the very beginning again, I want to make it perfectly clear that um, hyperbaric oxygen therapy is a medical treatment and it's a medical use of oxygen at a higher than normal atmospheric pressure and that this is a prescribed treatment for a prescribed amount of time. And these always bear, vary and are based upon the patient's condition. So I, I want to make sure that we understand that this is the medical use or treatment of oxygen
2: All right. and that it's prescribed. Okay, that's a really important point. You do need a prescription for this. And as with any other significant biomedical uh, intervention, um, you need to be under the care of an experienced treating physician who monitors your child's uh, overall health status on a regular basis, including objective laboratory testing.
5: Exactly. Yeah. So that's an important point. I just wanted to make sure we didn't really cover that before the break. So, under normal conditions and in a normal healthy individual, uh, you know, the oxygen that we breathe is carried by the red blood cells to the parts of the body where it's needed, and this is usually sufficient to take care of normal cell function, or in the case when there's insult or injury or infection, the oxygen generally that's available that's carried by these red blood cells is sufficient. To take care of whatever problem is there. And I always like to raise this point, too. You know, what's the first thing when there is an accident and an emergency medical crew or an EMS or an ambulance arrives at the scene of an accident, the first thing they do is administer oxygen. And why do they do that? Because oxygen is needed to help healing. And then that's just, like, not hyperbaric administration of oxygen. That's just administration of oxygen for therapy, for therapeutic uses. Now, oxygen under pressure, we're talking about something entirely different here. Oxygen, in this case, is a gas, and you need to understand some of the laws of physics to understand what's going on when you put oxygen under pressure. Under pressure, the oxygen can dissolve, and in this way, um, the red blood cells that are normally saturated that reach like a maximum level of oxygen that they can carry, uh, the oxygen can diffuse to other cells and tissues of the body under pressure because the oxygen is both dissolved, the gas becomes dissolved under pressure, as well as the fact as increased pressure increases the amount of available oxygen molecules. So you have two key things going on when you administer pressure. And even at low levels, when we're talking about something like mild or low hyperbaric oxygen therapy from, you know, 1.1, 1.2 to 1.3 atmospheres of pressure, you still see benefits because you're increasing the amount of available oxygen to reach the cells and tissues of the body.
2: Now, Dr. Underwood, I understand um, that a little girl named, a Gracie, who, who doctors had said should even be taken off of life support when she was younger. She was considered to have been in a vegetative state. Um, she had a, a rare uh, mitochondrial uh, disease, and she, her mom uh, took her for hyperbaric oxygen therapy. In fact, it was even 1.2, lower than the low pressure that you're talking about. And um, contrary to um, to to something that some of us have read in the newspapers lately. Um, It even helped restore her vision.
5: Exactly, yes. And that just goes to show you how powerful even such a small increase in the amount of available oxygen by this lower amount of pressure can make a significant difference. People have argued that you're not really doing anything at low pressures, whereas in the case with Grace where they're only using such a low pressure because when she suffered from seizures and mitochondrial disorder, a true mitochondrial disorder, they had to be very, very careful about how they treated this particular case.
2: Mm-hmm. And, and, and
5: yet, she, even at those low pressures, she was able to recover vision, which is absolutely incredible.
2: Yeah, not only did she live, which was, again... Right, because the, they were basically
5: given a prognosis of death and basically sent them home. And, it, I mean, it's just left them with absolutely no hope. And if anyone ever listens to Shannon Kennan's Give a Talk, I mean, her talk is of hope. And if she had not had that, I mean, her child wouldn't be with her today.
2: I know, Gracie's walking and going to school. And, and, Kelly, this inspired you, too, to help your son, Roman.
3: Oh, absolutely, Terry. Um, it's funny because I saw um, a, a clip on my local news station, and they they were talking about this little girl whose life had been saved by hyperbaric oxygen therapy. And I made it my mission. I was going to find this family. I was going to talk to this woman and um, you know, try to see if I could do the same thing for my son, if it would bring about some improvements for him. And um, I spent weeks and weeks on, on the Internet trying to, to track down this family, and finally, as luck would have it... Um, I I was able to get in in contact with with the mom and she um is just one of those people like Lauren said she just would not would not give up and um she does have a very strong message of hope and of and of perseverance and of trusting yourself and your your instinct and you know she speaks a lot about how you know your child better than anyone else and um you know doing the right thing for your particular family your your circumstances your your child and um yeah it was it was very inspiring and I was very very fortunate to um to to find this this family and and get um, access to the services she actually opened a clinic right down the sh- a mile from my house and um we were we were very very fortunate i i owe her a tremendous debt of gratitude that Frankly, I'll never be able to (laughs) repay.
5: And and it's her mentality, it's her similar mentality that a lot of the parents who have children suffering from autism also feel. You know, they're not satisfied in many cases with the the general health care that they're receiving, and that's why so many parents look for alternative-type treatments to try to help their child because they don't want to just sit and accept no for an answer and say, no, there's nothing you can do for this child. Or, you know, you can only do this one Type of treatment, and that's it. You're, you know, there's only ABA in that set, and there's nothing else that's going to make a difference for your child. And people just don't accept that because people are seeing that children are healing and recovering and and getting better from their autism symptoms.
2: Now, Dr. Van Dyke, what? What Dr. Underwood was talking about earlier with, you know, using the oxygen under pressure and therefore more, if I, I hope I have this technically correct, more oxygen being able to be dissolved into the plasma and such and reach parts of the body it normally wouldn't be able to get to under um, normobaric conditions. What, is, what bearing does this have on what you were talking about earlier with hypoperfusion?
4: Well, obviously, if you're underperfused of oxygen and if you can get extra oxygen out to the tissues, then that's going to be a good thing for those tissues the kind of interesting thing that I found with hyperbarics is that um, it's not just while you're in the chamber getting that extra perfusion going on that you see clinical improvements. It's Even after you finish your treatments course, the benefits persist after that, and I was always fascinated by that when I started seeing that in m- both my son, who was being treated for it, and other patients. And I think what's interesting is that when we're getting that extra oxygen out to those tissues, we're actually changing something at the cellular level where we're making those cells start to work better again. So even when the ox- extra oxygen's not there, they're continuing to work better. And that's really fascinating to me.
5: And, again, what many patients see is that, you know, say they only are able to do 40 treatments. It's not like once they stop, the benefits that they've gained go away. You know, they continue, they persist, they stay, which is, you know, very exciting thing to see with children with autism.
2: Dr. Underwood, what are some other conditions in general, that hyperbaric oxygen therapy has been used for
5: in children
2: well children adults just the the general science behind hyperbaric oxygen therapy and its efficacy
5: um well it it is fda approved for use for carbon monoxide poisoning for traumatic brain injury um, for, uh, I, I want to make sure I'm quoting things exactly like that. I, I, I know there's research that's been done where children have, been, have suffered damage because of uh, cancer treatment therapies and have undergone hyperbaric treatment and have helped whatever, you know, tissue damage that the cancer treatment has had, um, heal and recover from that. Um, what else? It's been used for neurological impairment. Um, let's see. I'm trying to think of what else. Dr. Van Dyke, can you? Yeah, the you classic think indication
4: of... has been for the bends, for like scuba divers that come up too quickly that get gas bubbles in their uh, bloodstream. And that's kind of the the most famous use for the hyperbarics. The other thing that it was used widely for was uh, treating diabetic wounds. That
1: that's it, chronic right. and
5: non healing wounds.
4: Yeah. And these are what's all considered the, you know, the on label indications. Everything that, uh, in terms of using hyperbarics for Autism, cerebral palsy, um, other things that we're doing. It's, it's considered off-label indications. doesn't mean it doesn't work. It's just not that, that, that it hasn't been FDA-approved to treat those things. Exactly. We do many things in medicine that are off-label.
2: All right, Dr. Underwood, do you want to go into a little bit more depth, pardon my pun, about the therapeutic principles?
5: Um, sure, absolutely. Um, I mean, what we talk about when we talk about, you know, the – oxygen getting to the cells of the body. Um, The red blood cells, it's actually the hemoglobin in the red blood cells, are what carry the oxygen to the different cells and tissues of the body. Um, So when we're talking about this, basically they can only go where those red blood cells can go in the body, where they can travel throughout the body. When you increase pressure, oxygen is able to be transported throughout the body without necessarily being bound to the hemoglobin because what you're doing under pressure is you're taking oxygen, again, which is a gas, and dissolving it into a liquid. And that way it's able to, you know, get to places in the body where, you know, the oxygen that's normally bound to just the red blood cells, you know, and are limited to where those red blood cells can get in the body, so this liquid oxygen, as we could say, could get To physically reach areas of the body where the red blood cells cannot pass. So, you know, you have this, you have the two step concept here. You have the fact that you're taking a gas, oxygen, and under pressure, you know, pushing it into liquid form so that it can get to places in the body where it might not normally be able to go. And also under pressure, gases under pressure, you know, increase the available molecules that are available to be used also. So you have twofold thing going on.
2: All right. Very good. And we will pick up with this when we come back. Thank you to our sponsor, EnzoMedica. We'll be right back.
6: Opinions. Options. Answers. Voice America Health & Wellness.
1: Tune in
2: We're back with Kelly Adams, Dr. Lauren Underwood, and Dr. Kyle Van Dyke. We're talking about hyperbaric oxygen therapy for use in autism. And what precedents do we have before autism for the use of hyperbaric oxygenation? For
5: what other studies have been done, there have been studies, and actually right now going on there is a tremendous, I believe it's an NIH, double-blind placebo study that's looking at the benefit, yeah, NIH, that's correct, um, that's looking at the benefits of evaluating mild hyperbaric oxygen therapy for treating cerebral palsy, okay. uh, which is very exciting, um, and it's a, a lengthy study, so it's going on um, actually right now. And uh, the time to evaluate if increasing available oxygen makes a potential benefit, um, it's also uh been used for carbon monoxide in poisoning in children and uh traumatic brain injury in children and I'm trying to think what else um uh and treating uh cancer patients.
2: And I think they did do a study in Canada, did they not, with uh hyperbaric and cerebral palsy, Doctor Mahua?
5: Oh yes, yes they did.
2: Well let's get into what mild hyperbaric oxygen therapy really means and um, what benefits have been reported um, well I
5: mean you know there's a you have to appreciate the difference uh, one one of the main therapeutic uses for hyperbaric oxygen therapy as dr. Van Dyke had said had been for divers who had suffered the bends and they had used a traditional steel sided chamber to achieve uh, pressures anywhere from 1.5 to does that sound correct, Dr. Van Dyke?
4: Yeah, they can go up to like three atmospheres sometimes in those studies, yeah. Um, And
5: and those are done basically in some sort of medical facility under medical supervision. uh, And the other types of treatments that we're talking about are mild hyperbaric treatments. And those pressures can also be achieved in these steel-sided chambers, but they can also be achieved in uh, what are known as soft-sided chambers. They're specifically designed to reach no higher than 1.3 atmospheres of pressure. And uh, those also are, you know, prescribed and done under the supervision of the healthcare provider.
2: Right, again, it's a, it's important to find an experienced provider, you know, well Knows
5: what they're doing, knows about the equipment that they're using, has a technician on hand who understands the equipment and how everything is being administered, absolutely.
2: Okay, so let's talk about safety. Some people um, probably and rightfully so have safety concerns. How is this administered safely? What are the pressures used? What's the concentration of oxygen, et
5: cetera? Um, I'm going to say a couple things, and then I'm going to let Dr. Van Dyke pipe in. Uh, One, uh, you know, it's prescribed by the physician based upon the individual. So, you know, there are several variables That you take, that the healthcare provider takes into consideration when they're administering. You're going to talk about time. How long that they're in the chamber. You're going to talk about pressure. What pressure you're going to administer while they're in the chamber. You're going to talk about oxygen. How much oxygen is going to be prescribed while they're in the chamber. You're going to talk about frequency of treatments how many treatments they're going to get, how often they're going to get those treatments. Are they going to be, you know, five days in a row? Are they going to be every other day? Um, and all these variables need to be assessed and evaluated based on the individual before treatment is administered. So pressure can be anywhere from, you know, low pressures, like we're saying, 1.1, all the way up to point. Zero, I guess, which which is available in the steel-sided chamber. Um, How long, you know, based, again, by the physician's prescription, whether it's, you know, a 60-minute treatment cycle, a 30-minute treatment cycle, a 45-minute treatment cycle. Again, frequency, how many treatments during a treatment block. Are you going to do 10 treatments, 20 treatments, 40 treatment block? Um, And, again, the concentration of oxygen. Are you going to administer any oxygen? Are you going to use 12% oxygen? Are you going to use 24% oxygen? Are you going to do 100% oxygen?
2: What what is the amount of pressure usually used for the children? However, I haven't heard of any children going up to 3.0. Oh,
4: uh, is that for me? Yeah. Yes. The, um, yeah. Generally, with with in terms of autism, it's o- it's only been looked at with the 1.3 atmospheres and the 1.5 atmospheres. Uh-huh. Um, when you start talking about two atmospheres, three atmospheres, that's um, you know, it's a whole different ballgame. There's much more risks in doing stuff like that. Um, it's also um, you need. Much specialized equipment to do those things, and those are only for a certain uh, kind of the traditional uh, uh, uses of hyperbarics. Using the mild hyperbarics, um, typically, like if, if a child's otherwise healthy doesn't have any significant problems with you know seizures or um, you know uh, other uh, you know fragile child, we would start them uh, if they have access to a facility where you can do the 1.5 atmosphere chambers. We would do the 1.5 atmospheres, usually using a hood that gives them 100% oxygen while they're in there, uh, for a period of 60 minutes, and usually do that for a total of 40 treatments. So if you're doing that twice a day, you can get that done in four weeks. Now, uh, the soft chambers that go to 1.3 atmospheres, some people may not have the ability to go to a center that does that, and the soft chambers are licensed for home use, so somebody could do soft chamber treatments at home. Uh, Many people do, and then they're doing that with 1.3 atmospheres, usually just with either room air or sometimes they'll use an oxygen concentrator uh, to boost it up um, a little bit from like 21% to 24% or 30%.
3: And actually, Terry, I should add that we have a soft chamber here at home that we use with my son now, um, and I feel very comfortable doing it. I have no medical background whatsoever, but um, I, I I think that's kind of the key. It's the perfect combination of an effective pressure and safety.
5: But again, you know, nobody is just sent home with a chamber. I mean, you've gone to a physician, you've had treatment, you've been monitored, and, you know, you've been watched over time before you take that next step where you want to bring a chamber home into into your house.
3: Absolutely, Dr. Underwood. We had done 120 treatments before we ever even um, contemplated doing, you know, using a home chamber.
5: Exactly. So I I just don't want people to be under the impression that you just go out and bring one home, that you, you know, go to a clinic, a physician, healthcare provider that is familiar with hyperbaric oxygen therapy treatment. Go through and then, you know, you and your physician come to the decision whether you'd like to move up to the next step and be able to bring maybe a soft-sided chamber into your home. Absolutely,
4: and they are medical devices, so you do need a prescription for them.
2: Yes, right.
4: Chambers, so.
2: Well, what happened in you know? There's some talk out there about something that happened in Florida, and and it was certainly um, very sad and very unfortunate. Um, and it was it was an iatrogenic artifact, um, like other medical mistakes that can happen in in hospitals or pharmacies or mainstream practitioners' offices. Um, Why don't you tell us about this? Do you want to go first or do you want me to go?
4: I guess I can talk about it. I I think we don't know all the details of of that particular case, but we do know that that's uh, a chamber that's using 100% oxygen that's pumped into the chamber under pressure. Now, obviously, any time you're using oxygen, just like if somebody has, you know, home oxygen um, with, because of lung disease, you've got to be very careful about that because, uh, you know, can uh, be risks of fire. What When you're in a pressurized chamber that's 100% oxygen, then there's going to be much more fire risks. You have to um, do certain precautions. can't take med- uh, any electronic devices in there. You have to wear special clothing so you don't generate static electricity. Um, now, I'm not sure exactly what the problem was in that facility, but um, to minimize, you know, to eliminate the possibility of that, what we do with with our centers is have... The chamber itself is pressurized with room air, so just the 21% oxygen. And then we have the child. So there's no increased risk of any kind of spontaneous combustion when you're dealing with 1.3 or 1.5 atmospheres. What you do then is um, you have, they have the child wear this clear plastic hood that has 100% oxygen pumped in, so they're breathing 100% oxygen under pressure, but the rest of the chamber is just filled with the room air under, under pressure. So you get the benefits of the 100% oxygen, but you don't have the extra risks involved. Right, because it's
5: only confined to in the hood.
4: Yeah, it's just around their head.
2: Okay, so is what you're saying that th- those safety procedures weren't followed in this particular case? And Again, I don't
4: know the specifics of that one, um, but um, you know, you, you just have to be much, much more cautious. You know, and, and if you're going to be using a facility that's doing it, you know, most hospital facilities have 100% oxygen going into their chamber, and they've you know the technicians that are properly trained as how to do that and how to uh, you know eliminate any risks of uh, anything like that happening. I don't know what the problem was specifically at that facility, but um, you would just obviously want to make sure that the people you were going to knew what they were doing.
5: Dr. Underwood? I mean, I, I agree with Dr. Van Dyke. I, I don't know the specifics of exactly what happens, but, you know, just like any time that you're in a hospital and oxygen is being administered or in a, you know, a healthcare facility, there is always a warning to be aware because, you know, anytime you're using 100% oxygen,
2: there is that risk, so. But are you saying that, in in the type of hyperbaric oxygen that you've seen children use, they're just having that concentration in their hood.
5: Yes, that is correct. Yeah, it's not yes.
2: And and is that a safe way to do, a safer way to do it or a
5: safer way? I mean, you know, you want to take all the safety precautions that you can. So you know, you're limiting where that 100% oxygen is is be, being available, or you know oxygen molecules are available, you know, just within the confines of the hood.
2: Okay, so how...
5: You're just restricting.
2: How many, I guess, there's probably no way to even guess this, how many thousands of hours and chamber, hundreds of or thousands of chambers and clinics and children have have done this safely so far? Is there any way to even estimate?
5: Um, I I know that in, you know, uh, Dr. Paul Harch's book, you know, he's been using hyperbaric oxygen therapy to treat traumatic brain injury in his clinic for, you know, I want to say over 20 years. Um, He has a book titled The Oxygen Revolution, and he quotes in this book. It's, you know, hyperbaric oxygen therapy, uh, possibly one of the safest measures because there's minimal rate ascribed to malpractice insurance companies associated with the use of hyperbaric oxygen therapy, which, which falls into one of the lowest-ranked risk categories. So, you know, in his expert opinion, you, know, you see very little risk associated with this type of treatment.
2: Oh, okay. Well, I guess if the um, insurance companies think it's safe, yeah, if, if, if it has a minimal rate ascribed to it by malpractice insurance companies, that's a, a pretty good testimonial.
5: That's an excellent testimonial.
2: Okay, very good. Um, well, thank you for providing that information. All right, so let's let's talk some more about the benefits that have been uh, reported with mild hyperbaric oxygen therapy.
5: Um, well, as, as Kelly had mentioned, you know, one of the reasons that she explored using it was because she wanted to increase language, receptive language, and expressive language and I, I think that's one of the major, major findings that most families who, you know, start with this treatment and their children are receptive to this treatment find. Um, um, social awareness, awareability, uh, more awareness of their surroundings. Better eye contact, and uh, I I think also on a physical basis, too, you know, motor planning skills increase as well. I I don't know if Dr. Van Dyke wants to add in anything.
4: Yeah, I guess with uh, Dr. Rosno's most recent study, which came out.
2: Oh, Dr. Van Dyke, I'm so sorry. I hear the music. Let's talk about this when we come back for break. (laughs) Thanks so much. Okay, our listeners, we'll be right back. Mm
6: Learn more. Live better. Voice America Health and Wellness. You've read the books, listened to the CDs, and gone to the workshops to learn spirituality. Now there's a way to help you live it every single day. The Spiritual Workout with Stephen Morrison. Call with any issue at all and Stephen will passionately help you see which of 15 universally spiritual concepts apply to your circumstance and how. Practice every Monday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern on The Spiritual Workout on 7th Wave Network. It's a practical path to a happier, more peaceful, and richer life experience. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness.
1: Welcome back to Autism One A Conversation of Hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866 472 5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry.
2: Okay, we're back. And before the break, Dr. Van Dyke was going to talk about uh, mild hyperbaric oxygen therapy and some studies talking about some good results.
4: Yeah, specifically, uh, Dr. Dan Rosinal came out with a study uh, just this past March in a journal called BMC Pediatrics. And people can download this article online. It's available online. It's called Hyperbaric Treatment for Children with Autism, a Multicenter Randomized Double Blind Controlled Study. And this is a really good study. It's kind of the golden standard of medicine um, if you've got a randomized placebo-controlled study. So what he did was actually put people in the chamber at 1.3 atmospheres and put other people in a chamber at 1.03 atmospheres. And it was just enough to simulate the effects of hyperbarics. But um, then he compared the treatment those two different groups and people didn't know which group they were in. And they saw improvements in the um, treatment group uh, significantly over the, over the sham treatment group with overall functioning, receptive language, social interaction, eye contact. Those are the, the big things that came out of it. And he's done a couple other studies as well. And it's usually that language Sociability and, and kind of overall functioning, which are the big things that show up in these studies.
2: And Dr. Underwood, did you want to continue with uh, any other uh, statistics from any other of the studies?
5: Um, well, in addition to that, I mean, the increased eye contact, uh, reduced irritability, reduced stereotypy, reduced hyperactivity, increased speech. I mean, these are all. Um, things that parents of children with autism look for, they want to reduce the negative behaviors and increase the positive behaviors. So it's very exciting that um, this kind of improvement was observed. On top of that, they also noted that at this level of pressure and this amount of oxygen, that this, on top of previously uh, studied work that they had published, demonstrated that this was um, safe and that it demonstrated clinical improvements. So it's a very exciting paper that was published.
2: Uh, are, are, which you're talking about, the Rosignol study? Yes. Or the study out of Thailand? Because I know that there was a study out of Thailand that confirmed the findings observed by Dr. Rosignol and his team.
5: That's, that's absolutely correct. So similar types of observations as far as improvements in positive behaviors and decrease in negative behaviors were observed in that Thai study.
2: Were they also looking at the things like um, overall functioning, receptive language, social interaction, eye contact, and sensory awareness?
5: Um, I believe so. I have a, like just summary here, and it, it basically says five significant areas of improvement: um, social interaction, eye contact, sensory awareness, and receptive language.
2: Okay, that would that would about cover it. Yeah. And
3: Terry, one other thing that we noticed just with my son in particular was. I think he just felt better because he was more focused and alert. And well, one of the ancillary benefits we saw was that his ABA, his home therapy programming, the acquisition rate of new skills went through the roof. My my therapist could hardly introduce new programs fast enough because mm. he, would, he would master them. Wow.
5: And another thing that Kelly said is that he felt better. Mm. And the fact that her son kept asking to go in the chamber yeah. because... He probably felt better when he went in the chamber. So whatever it was that was, you know, causing him pain or making him feel uncomfortable or not being aware or not being cognitive, he would feel better going in the chamber. He would ask her to go in, right? He'd be like, Mommy, oh. you know, are we going in the chamber? Go- what did <laughs> he, you call it again?
3: Yeah. He <laughs> asked all the time. We'd have to even drive by the clinic sometimes when we didn't have appointments just so that he could go And sit in the chamber.
5: Cool. And this this isn't an isolated incident. I hear this all the time. I mean, parents who treat their children, they you know, and that are receptive to this therapy, they want to go in. They, I hear this repeatedly from parents. My son will
3: he'll climb into the mild chamber that we have here in our house. He thinks it's like a sleeping bag, and he just will climb into it. And I'll I'll be looking for. I'll say, "Rome, where are you?" And he's in he's in the chamber, just sitting in there reading a book. (laughs) It's like his happy place. Are
2: there any um, routine types of, side of uh, mild side effects to, to look out for um, even you know when you're using the when the practitioner is using the chamber properly with um, you know, the safer amount of pressure and the safer amount of oxygen concentration delivered in a safer manner?
4: Yeah. The biggest thing that you get concerned about is ear trauma. Um, just like going up in an airplane, you know if you have a cold or sinus infection when you get in the plane, you can't clear your ears you can get that pain in your ears. Similar pr- uh, principle is going on in the chamber, except you're going to a higher pressure instead of a lower pressure. So if the child's showing any signs of discomfort, we would generally, and that's when the chamber's being pressurized, we would usually stop the pressurization, wait to see if they can equalize their ears, and, and if they can't, then just stop the dive for that day. Now, even a child that's nonverbal, and my son was nonverbal when we started uh, as well, You can just by looking at the child, you can generally tell if they're having significant discomfort going on. So that's the most uh, the common thing that we would see. And you know you can avoid those complications so long as you don't try to push. Right, you past can just it.
5: watch while it's being administered, and you can monitor the pressure.
2: Right, and the technicians look in yes. the, the window on the chamber, and there's also walkie-talkies going both ways between the technician and the uh, the patient or the, the can be, the or they parent. can have
5: a dive partner with them also. Right.
2: A dive partner, true. Um, okay, now Dr. Van Dyke, I understand that your son also. Um, which helped by hyperbaric after some side effects of anesthesia and also f- side effects of fluoride.
4: Yeah, um, we, my son uh, was diagnosed with autism back when he was two and a half, and we initially started doing uh, hyperbarics when he was three. One of the big things besides those things you mentioned as well was also his gut function, which is a huge factor in so many kids with autism. My son had chronic diarrhea uh, for the first you know, three years of his life, and he had his first normal bowel movement when we were doing our first hyperbaric uh, treatment. session. Wow. So that was phenomenal. And this that may go back to what the other parents were saying about how the children seem to feel better or just, uh, you know, if we can clear up gut inflammation, if we can make the bowels work better, then that's that's a huge factor in uh, making these kids feel better. And there's a lot of discussion as well about inflammation in the gut causing secondary inflammation up in the brain. Uh-huh. Uh, now, in terms of the, we've our son also had some a uh, real bad reaction when he had some anesthesia for um, uh, tonsil surgery. And one of the things that we used to help, he had regressed uh, terribly after that, one of the things that we used to help us kind of get past that regression was um, going back into the chamber and doing some more diets, and that also helped him to recover more quickly from that.
2: Wow. Well, that all sounds very significant. And and you're right, that does sound consistent with what Dr. Underwood was talking about with inflammation, gut inflammation, and then I like how you connected that to uh, the possibility of inflammation in the brain, you know, the gut and the brain being connected. And it's very possible that the anesthesia
5: had some, you know, oxidative stress effects and that at these low pressures, actually, hyperbaric oxygen therapy has been observed to, you know, actually help oxidative stress um, at lower pressures.
2: And I think you wanted to make a point, too, something you mentioned during the break, that this is um, a procedure that's not as invasive. Hyperbaric oxygen therapy is not as invasive as some other interventions. Hello.
5: Yeah, a- absolutely. Yes, I mean, you know, you are basically going into a you know pressurized chamber and sitting and hanging out for about an hour, and you know, there there's really little to no you know invasiveness going on. Like you know, as uh, Dr. Van Dyke said, you know, there might be some mild barotrauma or ear pain going on. Again, no different than like going up and down in an airplane, which you know you, you basically watch and. Um, modulate, but uh, it's very, very non-invasive.
2: Well, do we have any closing comments? Thank you all for being on today. Would any of you like to leave uh, parents and listeners with a take-home message?
4: Um, I think, uh, you know, in addition to everything else that we do, you know, typically in the treatment of autism, that the biomedical treatments, diets and supplements and stuff, uh, I've just found hyperbarics to be one of the things that uh, is becoming really a great for a lot of the kids in terms of getting them to the next level, making more improvements. Um, I've been working with it now for about four years, and I've just seen some of the kids make extraordinary improvements doing the hyperbarics. And it also makes my wife's gray hair go away when she goes diving with my
5: <laughs> Way cool. Way cool. I think it offers a safe, non-invasive way to treat some of these underlying medical conditions that these kids suffer from, whether it's you know cerebral hyperperfusion, gastroinflammation, um, Neuroinflammation, whatever it is, it's a non-invasive way to try and to safely address some of these medical conditions that these children suffer from, and that these kids do seem to respond very, very nicely. Um, improvements in all the negative behaviors, including you know irritability, hyperactivity, increased language, increased eye contact. You know, it, it's it's just across the board. Uh, a, a kind of comprehensive way to, you know, safely, non-invasively address many of these issues that these children have.
2: Well, I want to thank you all for sharing this hopeful information to move children with autism forward. To our listeners, doctors Van Dyke and Underwood will be speaking at the Autism One Generation Rescue 2010 conference. May 24th through 30th, 2010 in Chicago, along with about 140 speakers on all topics related to biomedical research and treatments, educational behavioral communication and adjunct therapies, and much more. Please visit www.autism1.org. My guests next week, Dr. Larry Malerba and Heather Walker, talking about how homeopathy, the only thing Heather used to move her son forward on the road of recovery from autism, and Vaccine Injury. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymedica. For questions about this program, please email me at taranga at autism1.org. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel.